Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast exists because of the paid members at DecodingTV.com. Become a paid member and get ad-free episodes and early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at DecodingTV.com who makes this podcast possible. I'd like to take just a second and make this about me. A lot of people have been asking about my arm. It's actually my shoulder. And I think tonight is a perfect time to tell everyone that Kieran Culkin beat the shit out of me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a weekly television podcast. I am David Chen. Joining me today, as always, he is Patrick Klepek. Patrick, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Welcome to our new weekly format. It's a big inflection point for the podcast. For years, Decoding TV has decoded weekly TV shows like Westworld, The Last of Us, Succession, and The Curse. We have loved diving in depth into these shows, analyzing them, and sharing our theories. But doing the podcast this way had a fatal flaw. (laughs) People mostly didn't listen to the podcast if they weren't watching the show. Uh, We might have, you know, and really dug ourselves a hole with the curse. Uh. (laughs) Also, there are some shows we want to talk about, like (laughs) Twisted Metal, that might not be dense enough <laughs> to support a weekly recap podcast. So instead, we are launching with this new weekly format. And hopefully, you feel more comfortable tuning in, even if you're not watching any specific show. Each week, we'll open by talking about one to two general topics about the world of television and entertainment. Then we're going to dive into some specific TV episodes we've watched that week. We'll put trailers when we bring up a new TV show in the audio. We'll also note the timestamp in the show notes so you can fast forward past that if you don't want to hear any spoilers for those TV shows. On occasion, we will continue to cover shows in the weekly recap format or via This Week in Streaming. Uh, But it is our hope that this weekly format will be the main engine of the podcast moving forward. So today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the first couple episodes of Echo, the season premiere of True Detective Night Country, and then concluding with a conversation about the season finale of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. But first, we got a couple main topics. Up first is the Emmys, then afterwards, the state of the Star Wars universe. Maybe we'll squeeze in a little Marvel talk in there, too, to join us for our conversation about the Emmys. He is the founder and editor, nay, visionary mind, <laughs> behind the Substack newsletter, Episodic Medium. Miles McNutt, welcome back to Decoding TV. Thank you very much for having me on this inaugural uh, weekly edition of this fantastic program. (laughs) You know, I was uh, talking with Miles before the show about the struggles of trying to cover television. And he pointed out something that I don't even know why it hadn't occurred to me uh, that for something like The Curse, if people aren't watching it, a lot easier to get people to read an article about it uh, than to listen to a podcast about it. Because an article is like five to ten minutes of your time. A podcast like an hour. And uh, it's a different time commitment, you know, reading at episodic media versus listening to decoding TV. 
I think a lot so. of people definitely with that show in particular were sort of like, what is going on? Like truly like what is happening? I'm so curious. <laughs> I have no desire to keep watching an hour of this every week because I'm bored, but like I need to understand like what is going on as a point of curiosity. And so like I saw a huge disparity between comments and likes where people were just like, I'm enjoying reading this. I'm enjoying reflecting on it. No desire to watch that TV program. Um, and definitely probably not a desire to delve as deep as I'm sure y'all were. Indeed, indeed. Well, Miles McNutt, let's talk about the Emmys, which aired last night as we're recording this right now. Uh, it aired on Monday night, the 70, 75th annual Emmys. Uh, and apparently, according to the Emmys, there was approximately three shows on television, uh, which, which won <laughs> a number of awards. Basically, Succession picked up six awards uh, the evening of the Emmys. The Bear picked up six awards uh, during the telecast. And Beef won five awards. And that was most of the night, what I just said, uh, were those three shows. Last week, tonight, won a couple of awards. And, of course, there are other categories uh, that uh, also other shows won awards for, but that weren't broadcast at the 75th telecast. So uh, th those are the big stories. It was like Succession, The Bear, and Beef. Those are the big ones. Uh, I will say that it was a weird broadcast uh, because, obviously, the Emmys were supposed to air this fall. But they got mm -hmm. delayed due to the strikes. And so they were honoring work that had aired or broadcast often a year ago, often like even more than a year ago. Right. I think the bear in particular is really relevant in this circumstance because like this is the first season of the bear that was nominated right. for the award, which <laughs> right. aired in the summer of 2022. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by definition. And so like particularly in the case of sort of Eben Moss Bachrach who won for supporting actor in a comedy series um, for his role as Richie. If you think about it in the first season of that show, would you look at that character and that <laughs> performance and say, that is the best supporting actor in a comedy series on television. <laughs> you would not do that in a single world. However, when they were voting on these awards and nominating people and thinking about this, I guarantee you every single Emmy voter who voted for him was thinking about season two of The Bear, which is eligible at the next Emmy Awards. <laughs> so I fully expect right. that man is going to win an Emmy for the same performance twice. Like 100 <laughs> percent. Right, like right. he's going to win again. And it's not it's just how that's going to be. You're referring, of course, to like season two episode called the For uh, called Forks, which was like really amazing episode that he was the star of. Uh, but yes, uh, the fact that it, it, it's like kind of like a cheat code where during the voting period, a whole other performance is airing on TV that everyone's talking about uh, and people are voting on. So, uh, yeah, it, it felt odd that we're honoring work that happened like 12 plus months years, uh, 12 plus months ago. Uh, but other than that, I would say for an award show, it was an OK broadcast. Nothing went terribly wrong. It wasn't a disaster. It was fine. Miles McNutt. What did you think? Um, I agree with you on the broadcast. I think for the most part, for the weird, weirdly, uh, so like it was actually short. Like later in the broadcast, Anthony Anderson was clearly vamping for time at one point, recapping <laughs> what took place. Like they were running a couple minutes short. There was a bit towards the end where Tracy Ellis Ross and Natasha Leone were doing the I Love Lucy uh, chocolate factory bit. And you could tell like that bit could have gone for 10 seconds and instead it went for a full <laughs> minute. And it's because they literally just didn't have time. And I'm like, it was very efficient. I think the big yeah. kind of piece of the broadcast part we're talking about is the reunions of various casts across TV history. 
um, which I thought generally never went on too long. I felt like each one kind of felt like it was well paced and well situated and was always part of a presentation. So it always felt like it was kind of keeping the award show moving forward. I think it was generally an amiable way to spend three hours, which is not always the case Absolutely. when we're talking a major award show. Could have been a lot worse. And yeah, they, they, they wanted to celebrate the 75th anniversary by saying, hey, uh, look at all the TV that's happened in the last 75 years. Now, I do want to say that many of those reunions were tinged with sadness for me, personally, because most of the shows that were honored in those reunions, like Cheers and Martin and uh, Grey's Anatomy and The Sopranos, uh, are of shows that lasted longer than five seasons, which almost never happens right now because of the streaming environment and the way the financial incentives are built. Uh, there are You can count on maybe two hands the number of Netflix shows that have gone over five seasons. So it's like celebrating this time of past. Remember when Everyone used to watch TV and TV used to be good and and ran for many years and was a big part of our lives. Not really that much anymore. You know, like it's it's celebrating this moment that's passed. Patrick Klepek, you're not typically a fan of these award shows, you know, but you checked out significant parts of the program last night. Curious, what was your reaction? Uh, usually my interaction with the Emmys, uh, is, uh, having to set up, uh, an iPad <laughs> so that my wife can watch all of the red carpet stuff while she is on her phone, furiously texting back and forth in a group chat as they, I mean, judging might not be the wrong word uh, to, to use, uh, <laughs> but you know, like that, like that is usually my, it is like making sure that she has her setup so that she can do that for, I mean, she doesn't like the golden globes, the Emmys like that, that these, that's like her big moment with a bunch of her friends is to watch right. all that stuff. But what I thought was really interesting about your point, David, is if you try to imagine the, the, doing the recreation, like getting groups back together, get cast back together, very common. We see this happen in all sorts of different types yeah. of award shows. Oscars, a, Golden Globes, it happens, yeah. yeah. If you try to imagine what would it do 30 years from now, right? What are the shows that would even – like they still have eras to go through, right? Like Game of Thrones, you could do it. Yeah. Uh, the Office – Parks and like we, st there are still eras ahead of what they're celebrating mm -hmm. that fit that traditional TV format where a show becomes part of your life, where it be like these characters are central to how you think about how you spend your time and you form emotional bonds. The kinds of shows that qualify for that these days are really rare, like Stranger Things, pro like probably, you know what I mean? Like, is one yeah. that maybe meets Str that Stranger moment. Things in Succession, maybe, but like Succession, not even a, a, a close to a phenomenon as no. any of the other shows that were mentioned. Uh, that the night, Stranger right? Things so. is a pop culture hit to the yeah. degree that you would know who these people were and they would grow up. Like, you could see and envision right. that. Succession is a critical darling. Nobody watched yes. that show. I mean, people yes. watch that show, but like in the grand scheme of things, single like digit millions of people watched it. Show. Yeah. Right. So, right. And yeah. so it just, I think it comes at a very interesting inflection point in yeah. not only to, to your point about how long shows are on the relationship we have with those shows in our lives, but then, you know, peak TV as a concept is sort of crumbling before our eyes as the consolidation happens in streaming, in television production. It just makes me wonder, how do you, what are you celebrating? In, like television will continue to be around, but the format in which we, in, we indulge in it, we consume it, we memorialize it. I think all of that is fundamentally shifting, even if we won't feel it for, you know, a decade from now. Absolutely. Completely agree. Uh, changing the topic slightly, you know, Miles, one of the things that 
has been brought up that I've already brought up is how few shows were honored yep. <laughs> during the evening. This is a constant problem. Pa- uh, Alan Seppenwall wrote about it at, at Rolling Stone and, and how there's not very many solutions to it. Like you could increase the number of categories. So there's drama and there's comedy and maybe you could say dramedy category you know like you could you could increase the number of like overall categories people could submit things for or you could force people to watch the shows like watch more shows but like that's difficult to do you know so the problem is there's so many shows that are so good and then every year at the Emmys, only three are honored or like four are honored in any significant way. And it makes for a boring telecast as well, right? Yeah, so, I mean, like, and yeah. so I, I did go back and I was trying to figure out because people were talking about how, like, is this new or not? And it's like, obviously, in previous years, we've seen shows like The Crown completely swept categories in the year succession was not eligible in the drama categories. And they're like, well, what else are we going to do? Um, uh, <laughs> moreover, Schitt's Creek swept the field, right? right yeah. In all of its categories and its final year is sort of this coronation uh, was sort of like, wait, we didn't pay any attention to you for a long time. And now you're important because you went to Netflix. Um, but like, <laughs> these are the things that happened, right? But like, we have never had a year where three shows in all three categories have done what these shows did, which is sweep writing, directing, series, as well as at least two acting right. at awards, right? Yeah. And like, none swept the field entirely, you know, succession lost supporting actress um and beef didn't win either of the supporting awards and um the bear wasn't nominated in lead actress um this year because they were still playing the categories with the first season but like realistically like still it felt like they only watched one show in each category and for it to be that across the board in past years we've seen splits in those areas like you might be thinking oh well did the queen's gambit or those types of things but like those years there were kind of other shows they gravitated towards performances that stood out leads that but like there was just none of that this time and i think the frustrating part of it is that like none of these shows are bad like, we right. can't be too mad about it. Like, it's not like we can be like, oh, that's the most boring thing they could have done. It's like, well, look, Succession, widely considered to be a great show. And also the fact that, like, you know, Snook and Culkin had never won Emmys before in those categories. So it's not as though, like, they were just rewarding the same people over and again. Right? This is the Bears' first time. We can't be mad about it, even though it's just going to do the same thing next but year. But we want to be so mad about it. But we want to <laughs> be. And, like, same thing with Beef, where it's just sort of like, that's a fundamentally good show with two great lead performances. I think I would have been a bit annoyed, even though I don't really care that much about the people who won the awards, if they had won the supporting awards for roles that I didn't think were as substantial as the leads were. But ultimately, it's like, these are not like bad examples. This is not the Emmys treading in this like really boring water. It's just that it's not like they nominated Obi-Wan or anything like that. Don't get (laughs) do not get me started about what is by far and away the dumbest possible nomination I can think of. Um, But like, I think at the end of the day, you start to start to realize like, okay, if we're not mad at the Emmys for like doing the boring thing. We're mad at them for just, they didn't watch enough stuff. They didn't think about these performances in context. They didn't like grapple with those things. But to your point, you cannot force the Emmy voters to do anything. The time where like they created blue ribbon panels that had to watch episodes of all the shitty people that were nominated and use that to build nominations was the year they nominated Kevin James for King of Queens. So we know that system doesn't work because <laughs> it's just like, these are not the systems that we need. This is not the solution that we have. We're mm-hmm. stuck in a scenario where it's just like the response to TV from Emmy voters has been to narrow 
their sort of pathway of what they consider to be great and just kind of be like, it's easier. Why am I going to go try to do everything and make it from there? Um, and so I think we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about, is this a matter of like trying to revitalize the Emmys or should we just like stop pretending that it matters, right? <laughs> to just sort of accept that like realistically, we're never going to win this. Let's just accept it as the nomination is a victory. The chance for recognition is where it comes from. And as long as they're awarding good shows, can we really justify complaining about it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and the, the broader question, is what is the function of an award ceremony and telecast like the Emmys in today's day and age? I posted on threads last night uh, how I thought the the broadcast went okay. It was very unobjectionable, right? There are so many years where we watch a broadcast and we think that was a travesty. And this one was not, it was completely adequate. There were like very efficient, very occasional humor, a handful of great speeches, but I also said, hey, I wonder like what Gen Z thinks of, uh, you know, Ali McBeal's tribute and the Cheers tribute and stuff. And somebody responded with something that I thought was very astute, which is I don't think younger people watch award shows. Right. And uh, I I think, you know, certainly a lot of the TikTokers I watch watch award shows. But like, I think there's many people coming up in the next generation for whom shows like this are just completely irrelevant and I don't see them doing anything to try and change that, right? Uh, award shows basically continue to have, like so Golden Globes last week or like, a couple weeks ago, Emmys, probably the Oscars this year, they continue to just have the same format. Uh, and that format, I think a lot of people who are younger find pretty uninteresting. Patrick, back on here. I don't even both of you about this, but Patrick, what do you think about that? And Miles, I'm curious about you think about that as well. Well, it's it's. I think it's a, a measure of format, right? Like, and a lot of people point towards something like in the space I work in, like the Game Awards. Is like, do right. you just go full commercialization? Do you just turn this into sort of a trailer factory for what comes next? And then the awards are kind of sandwiched in between. I, I've covered you know, the Game say, Awards. Say what you will about the tenets of the Game Awards, Patrick Klepek, but at least it's an ethos, is what yeah. I would say about that. You know, <laughs> and that ethos sucks, but like it is one. Um, like it's a the, this year's Game Awards was the most miserable. Uh, right. uh, package they put together yet in trying to yeah yeah well I tr- saying they tried to balance the commercial and the artistic would be I think a very <laughs> generous interpretation of yeah. how the game awards were, were packaged this year but that's man that's just putting sugar in like that's just giving the the audience a sugar rush I don't know that it necessarily fundamentally changes the dynamic at the heart of because with the game awards they're called the game awards but it's they're trailers. You're there for trailers yeah. and awards that happen to be there. And so I don't know that the solution to the Emmys or the Oscars or any of these is necessarily like looking forward to stuff that you might be interested in. I think in many ways it's, this speaks to just sort of like the fact that entertainment has become so scattered. Like we don't just sit down to watch TV. We don't just sit down to like go see a movie. Like all of entertainment has become this just sort of like, really blurry line of like where we spend our time and it speaks to peak tv it speaks to the rise of video games just people's interests is just scattered and how many people lots of people watch probably lots of gen z watches tv but do they just love the medium of television (laughs) so much that they want to see it rewarded right probably not they not even think about it in those terms at all right it's just it's it's you know I, i always feel like when i look at my kid and interact with with their ipad it's like she doesn't really have video game time. She might do a video game for 10 minutes and then bounces to something else. It's just, they have a fundamental different relationship with entertainment 
And I think that tension is then reflected increasingly over time with these award shows that are like hyper-targeted, like, but you watched movies this year. And I just think younger audiences don't think of their entertainment time in the same way. Right, right. Whereas yeah. these award shows were created in an earlier era when the, the arrival of the television set was a massive technological uh, game changer, you know? So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to yeah. that. Miles McNutt, what do you think about just the, the basic concept of award shows in general? These right. Days? I've put a lot of thought into this academically. And, like, I remember I asked some of my students at one point, because I was just like, because every time an award show happens, like, I'll walk to class in an hour from now and just be like, hey, who watched the Emmys last night? And it's a joke. <laughs> like, it's a fully a joke, right? <laughs> I know for a fact that none of them watch the Emmys. There's, like, 36 of them, and the chances of one having done so is incredibly slim. And, and these are people who have miles as a professor and who have dedicated their right. lives to studying media in some yeah. capacity. Now, mind right? you, they've been in this class for a week. So like they haven't yet been fully acclimated, but like <laughs> one of the things about that conversation that will be very clear to me is like, but I sort of asked once it's like, so for the people who do like a couple people was going on. And like, one of them was just sort of like, I watch award shows because like, and this was an African-American student and they're just like, I want to see people like me be recognized, right? That the questions of diversity, the questions of inclusion were sort of front of mind to how they viewed award shows and the way they sort of understood them. And I was sort of like, that's an interesting answer to that question that reframes maybe how we think about what these award shows are, that they're a matter of visibility, right? That they're a matter of sort of creating this opportunity in those systems. But the thing is that like, A, there's, first of all, most of the time that's not what happens, right? We see cases like this year where Quinta Brunson's win, right? And the wins for Ali Wong and Steven Yun, like we see some like meaningful diversity happening in these award categories and Iowa DeBerry, et cetera. But like some years, it's just going to be a bunch of white people. So it's like, you're not going to get that every year <laughs> yeah. from what you're looking at. But I think the important thing is like, I think the point Patrick makes about like, do people care about television? And it's just kind of like, the realistic point is that these award shows are for a group of people who grew up like this. Like David, mm -hmm. you mentioned sort of like being like an older millennial, a lot of these nostalgia beats, like we understood the Ally McBeal segment, right? We knew why they were dancing. We knew why they were in a, in a, like in right. a unisex bathroom. Like those things could be like cultural reference points we could have. Uh, Gen Z watching that and surely was like, what the hell is going on <laughs> with this particular case study? And I'm like, the reality of that is award shows are for an audience of people who are going to like, it's going to die with us like truly and fully, right? I don't think that our cultural understanding of award shows is at all going to pass down. There's nothing I can do to pass that on to a younger generation. Like, and this is why, look, award shows, like the Emmys in particular, so the Emmys are operating on a carousel between the broadcast networks. And realistically, this carousel goes through 2026. And more or less, I think all the broadcast networks wish they had not renewed this contract um, when they lasted. I think they probably wouldn't have done it if they had realized how much ratings would erode and how much every single broadcast network would get absolutely no nominations um, beyond like Abbott Elementary end of list effectively That's a good at this point. moment. I hadn't thought about right? that. Like, so they are like, it's so humiliating. Ad. It's humiliating. Yeah, basically. Yeah, they are yeah. basically paying to broadcast their obsolescence uh, in a very fundamental way. And so when the carousel comes up, they have to ask that question. Is this still worth it for us? Right, and the simple right. truth is it is worth it for exactly one broadcast network, and that is CBS. 
Why is it worth it to CBS? Because CBS has a captive audience because their audience is old and their audience will just turn on CBS on a given night because that's the channel that they have an affinity towards. No other broadcast channel still has that audience. And that's why when the Emmys like cycle back to CBS, the ratings always pop up. And it's always like, is this a sea change in how people see the Emmys? No, it's that people just watch (laughs) CBS by default. And surely this is going to be the lowest rated Emmys given the football competition that comes in January, (laughs) given the fact that it was on Fox, which itself as a broadcast network tends to draw lower ratings. Like it was was also on a Monday night, which is very bizarre. The move to Mondays is sort of a longstanding issue of like, where do you put this thing when you don't want to compete against actual television because no one's going to choose this over actual TV. Um, <laughs> the, the long and short of it is that like, we're talking about something that matters so little culturally and it is kind of clearly disintegrating. And yet, and yet it's value to the industry is higher than ever. Mm-hmm. The industry cares about it more than ever. Like you don't think it matters to FX that they just won their first comedy or drama series award with the bear right? That that wasn't a huge accomplishment in their feeling of position in the industry. You don't think Apple is really frustrated that all that money they sunk into all those shows led to just like a Paul Walter Hauser win in supporting actor and nothing for Ted Lasso, nothing for those types of programs. Like you don't think Netflix and HBO aren't still in a cosmic battle over these respective categories and sort of how they can play that out. The industry continues to care about this. And so the question is like, can they where can they find a home that allows them to not matter to people, but where they can keep functioning and mattering to industry people? How can we put it in like a, a nursing home equivalent of television <laughs> where they can they can have their little fun and games, but that no one needs to watch them, basically? Well, weirdly, you want it on a streaming service where you don't have to release any of the data. And, and, right. so, and then it can just exist. The articles will happen. The yeah. broadcast. Ha- like ultimately, like what undermines a lot of this is the is the number. The numbers are embarrassing, like every year, <laughs> year over year. But other than that, unless it's like. The Golden Globes were the actual production of the, the of the presentation is embarrassing, and that itself goes viral. Although maybe that's what you actually want. Like these days, is just uh, to have a disaster of a performance that makes people interested in it. But I mean, I think that is fundamentally. It. But like, what are you going to do? Put it on? Just give it to Netflix, and then, like right. they broadcast. So- for yeah. the record, the Screen Actors Guild Awards are heading to Netflix this year. They were on YouTube last year, but those used to be on cable on TBS and TNT. And effectively, they were like, this no longer matters to us. Like, why are we in this business? <laughs> and so it was Netflix who stepped in, right? And yeah. it's kind of like, that's a huge test case for A, Netflix's ability to do live broadcasts, um, yeah. which that was gone great in the past. But also specifically their ability to just like use that as a value add for it to be something that invests those programs. But like you know, Netflix is so invested in award shows, it just makes sense, right? But we then take the Golden Globes, which went to CBS because again, CBS viewers will watch anything. That's probably what happened. But like the Golden Globes still exist because they were purchased by Penske Media because Penske Media owns all the Hollywood trades that get all their advertising revenue from four-year consideration campaigns. So you're now dealing with the Hollywood trades running an award show with historical precedent to subsequently drum up an awards race and for your consideration campaign that then ultimately lines their pockets. So the industry is so much incentive to keep award shows alive, financially yeah. speaking, and in terms of prestige and those types of systems. It's just kind of like, yeah, at what point do they realize that this is like a closed circle? 
right? Like that there is no like actual audience for this content beyond this sort of like small cabal. And it's like, in cases like the Emmys and things like that, okay, you find a streaming service, you find a way to kind of make this happen, that's fine. But like the Oscars have exactly the same kind of challenge attached to them. And in that case, the TV deals are the only reason the Academy is able to function, right? Like you have to ask yourselves, if you're the TV Academy and you're trying to run these awards, you're an operation. They have scholarship programs, right? They have philanthropy efforts. They have all these things that the TV Academy does how do they keep functioning if they're not getting these broadcast rights coming in the same way or if the streaming deals that come in fall apart and they don't kind of function like the awards can still exist but as an institution are we going to sort of lose whatever other value these organizations do in hollywood or in these cases um i've been to the tv academy and been part of like a faculty fellowship they used to do but they also have like internship programs for college students um where they'll pair you with industry mentors and kind of facilitate those types of programs all those things probably depend on the revenue the emmys generates and so i do think that there's some other dynamics happening around those that yeah. kind of stand out in that case for the record uh sag is going to air on netflix sag awards i should say will air on netflix on february 24th uh, 2024. So we will see how well that goes. I tried tuning into two Netflix live events in the past, the Chris Rock special, which went fine, and the Love is Blind uh, reunion, which was a catastrophe. Uh, so I'll just, I think it's fair to say they have a spotty record when it comes to uh, live broadcast. And we'll see how at least, SAG at least the, the SAG, I don't know that. <clears throat> People are going to be trampling down the internet servers <laughs> to get to that one. That's so, true. That's true. That's true. I feel like, like how dare might, you? It's like how dare you, Chris Patrick Rock, Patrick. Love Is Blind, <laughs> SAG Awards. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. the the engineers over there. They, they I don't know if they'll be uh, sweating that day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow, Patrick, we're going to get a bunch of angry emails from the SAG people as a, as a result of this comment. Uh, uh, a couple a couple of closing thoughts here. First of all, Miles, I like the idea of us needing to pass on generational knowledge of the award shows. You were saying how, oh, like we're it's going to die with us. And, you know, no, no, Miles McDutt, we're going to be telling the kids long ago, we used to stand on stages and give out envelopes to people. And they used to give long speeches full of names of people you didn't know, you know, like. We can be the ones that pass on the oral history of the awards is what I'm trying to say. All right. All right. So it doesn't have to die with us. We can pass it on. Uh, But you're right. It makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous to pass them like that on. I want to bring up one last thing uh, about this year's Emmys, which is the greatest disgrace uh, of the Emmys this year, which is, I think we all know what I'm going to say. Better Call Saul, one of the greatest shows of our era. Agreed. Uh, finished its run with zero Emmy wins at all uh, after being nominated 53 times. Infuriating. A huge, huge bummer. Even at the Oscars, you know, say what you will about the Oscars, but oftentimes, you know, they'll like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, okay? Like Jamie Lee Curtis won last year. Uh, she was awesome in everything, everywhere, all at once. But like, was that really the best performance of that year? <laughs> no. I don't think so, right? No. Like, but, but they gave it to her because like she uh, it was kind of, Often serve, it often kind of serves as a lifetime achievement award. Like, hey, you've been doing this for so long. We want to honor you in some way. The Emmys DGAF about any of that, apparently. Like, it's like they don't even want to 
obviously they thought it was good enough to nominate, but not good enough to win, which is a huge shame. Miles, but that any any thoughts on that before we end today? I mean, look, there's a long lineage. People always point to The Wire as a show that never won an Emmy. But here's the thing: The Wire was also never nominated for right. Emmys. That's an no. important distinction, right? That part of what's happening here is that, in part, because we expanded the categories and the nominees within them. Right. We now have a larger number of nominees in every category, meaning that there's more sort of range to happen in those respects. Um, and given that in the midst of this, that we kind of have shifted towards these kind of dynasty logics where we don't mix things around as much, et cetera. Um, I think and I think you're just dealing with a situation where you just got to accept that they liked it. They never loved it. You know, they respected it, but never connected to it. Maybe the fact that it was a spinoff was held against it. Right. That in some way they're like, we spent mm-hmm. all that time rewarding Breaking Bad. This is just a derivative case of that. So we're not going to give it as much attention. Um, I think at the end of the day, you sort of have to sort of like basically, again, we love to do this where it's like when the Emmys acknowledge something we love. Right. Like where they pick up on a show where it's just like, yes, they finally understand. Right. They're all there. They see what we see. You know, they're on the right page. But then like when they don't nominate things or they don't let things win, at that point we have to shift to the Emmys don't know what they're talking about. It's all a big popularity contest. They don't even watch the shows they're looking at. This is not an objective evaluation of anything that we care about <laughs> in those respects. We just have to live with that. Like we just have to live with this truly depressing fact, with this truly unfortunate like bit of trivia uh, but ultimately, like when those situations pop up, just like Emmys don't matter, Emmys don't matter, Emmys don't matter. Like you just gotta drill it through your head. That is one thing I'm gonna pass on. One <laughs> one day long ago, there was a show called Better Call Saul, and even though it was never honored by the Emmy voters, it was still brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Miles McNutt. Miles McNutt is the creative visionary <laughs> and CEO of the Substack newsletter Episodic Medium. Be sure to check it out. Miles McNutt, thanks so much for joining us today at Decoding TV. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's move on to our next topic, which is there's going to be a Mandalorian movie, question mark? Patrick Lepic, tell us about this. Uh, well, you know, Kathleen Kennedy has spun the Star Wars movie wheel again and is tick, 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 tick. Oh, this time it has landed on reliable John Favreau, who, you know, was the showrunner. I don't know how he's credited exactly on, on The Mandalorian, but, you know, obviously a kind of chief architect of a right. lot of Star Wars' relevance, uh, especially in, in television, Disney Plus with The Mandalorian and the several seasons that uh, we've seen there. But um, the expectation had originally been We'd be getting a new raid-led Star Wars film that kind of kicked off a new era of Star Wars that takes place after Rise of Skywalker. But instead, uh, it seems like maybe some season four scripts of The Mandalorian are being turned into a new film called The Mandalorian and Grogu, uh, which is supposed to go into production uh, this year. Um, I don't think we have an exact date for when it's arriving, right. but Bob, and, and, Bob Iger is tapping his watch saying <laughs> a star. I think he's like actually said that a star Wars film needed to be in theaters by like Christmas, like 2025 or something like that. And it seems to be, maybe this is a little bit of the impetus for why uh, this film in particular is maybe being fast tracked. Well, uh, I, I think uh, there's only one detail there that I'm not sure is hundred percent correct. And you're forgiven Patrick, because at this point, the number of movies they have announced mm. is far higher. Like the number of movies they've announced that have not been made is far higher than the number of movies that have actually been made. <laughs> yeah, right? that is true. So yes. like, it's it's okay to like not keep this all straight. But my understanding is Mandalorian season four was going to happen. Like they had finished all the scripts, but they didn't, uh, the, the strike happened. So they're like, okay, well, 
now we got to retool this. And maybe some of those slash all those scripts will go into this Mandalorian and Grogu movie directed by John Favreau. We'll see. Separately, there are also movies in production, uh, like uh, one starring Ray, uh, or sorry, starring Daisy Ridley playing Ray, that takes place after the rise of Skywalker. Uh, that was supposed to be directed by Charmaine Obey Chinoy. Uh, at one point, it had Damon Lindelof working on it. So it's, it seems to have gone through like multiple creative cycles. Um, I just heard literally this morning that that movie might not be happening <laughs> via some source, some rumors online that or might be delayed. So like, who knows what's going on with that? There's supposed to be a James Mangold uh, directed movie that takes place in like the early, early, early days of the Jedi. And then separately, Dave Filoni is supposed to be directing uh, a movie that brings together like the Ahsoka and all the other stuff that's going on in the Star Wars universe. Uh, unclear whether this and the Mandalorian and that are the same movie. I think they are not. Um, I think they're separate movies, and maybe that Agreed. one will still happen in the future. So yes, so theoretically, uh, there's four different Star Wars movies of which this one, Mandalorian and Grogu, seems like the most likely one to happen the soonest, right? That's kind of my assessment. Yes. And um, and also John Favreau is a, but he's an efficient filmmaker, right? Like if you follow the production history of the Mandalorian, you know, to your point, all the, you know, the, 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 the report that these scripts for season four were already done. It was always fascinating whenever a new season of the Mandalorian would finish. And then like Favreau would do an interview. He's like, Oh yeah, I already finished the scripts for the, for the next season. And you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. such an interesting contrast to, how we've gotten used to uh, how a lot of tel- like blockbuster television shows are made these days where you might go years in between a new season, which is so different than the way television would often be in the past. You know, when I watch a show like Lost, like, well, it finished in May. Well, the new season will be back in September just because of the way production has changed. Of course, obviously, budgets are different. But if there is, you know, I made the joke about Captain Kennedy spinning a, you know, a Star Wars movie wheel because you're right. At this point, there are more canceled announced projects than there are movies that have actually like made it to any meaningful period of production, which I think speaks to a lot of the challenges. Like, what do you do after the creative disaster that was Rise of Skywalker? What do you do when the legacy of Star Wars is so intertwined with a group of characters and the Skywalker family in particular? How do you move past that? I think those are fundamentally challenging questions that would vex um and it's not like Kathleen Kennedy is like new to this like she this is a you know a veteran uh you know uh you know executive in the in Hollywood that has you know worked across so many different amazing products over the years so to find her trying to find a path forward in this is not I think super surprising and it speaks to the challenge of Star Wars as a franchise but that's all to say of any of these projects that I think will actually make it into a theater for you and I to watch at some point I think Favreau's going to get the job done. Like he, it seems like the moment you hit the John Favreau button is, can we just please get a Star Wars movie into a movie theater? And I, I really do think it's going to happen. I think people are underestimating the degree to which Grogu, uh, in particular, will be. I don't. I don't know if that turns into a billion dollar movie, but that 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 character is still extremely popular, and I think mm. there is a chance for this. Like Favreau's an extremely skilled filmmaker. I think people also don't really. And forget that sometimes. He's only directed one episode, I think, or two episodes of The Mandalorian. And the ones in which he's touched as a filmmaker have been excellent. Uh, so I actually have a high degree of confidence that this will be like a very competent, really fun movie, um, which is more than you can say of, you know, a lot of Star Wars projects uh, at the moment. Uh, yeah. So you're like excited about that. You're, you're 
thinking to yourself, hey, Mandalorian and Grogu, logical next step would be to have a movie and to see it on the big screen. That would be like, that, that's kind of your overall reaction is like, logical I'm, next I'm step. I don't know, except that like it makes sense for the start, like the stops and starts that this franchise has had. Like, I think the formulaic nature of the Mandalorian makes a lot of sense where you could tell a a one-off movie, whether I don't know how connected this is going to be to what Filoni is doing. I have, I have no idea what sort of weight that like Star Wars is going to put on this film to set up what comes next. But where, without getting into spoilers of where the Mandalorian is as a franchise, where those characters are left the last time we saw them, they can go have adventures and it could be completely inconsequential to setting up, you know, uh, any of the, the villains from, from Ahsoka or other, the other, uh, parts of the star Wars universe. I just think there's a high, like the floor of a Favreau movie is pretty high. I just don't know what the ceiling is. And so I expect this to be like a really good time. Um, and whether it's, you know, transcendent, I don't know, but I don't know if star Wars, how star Wars is capable of that these days outside of an Andor. Yeah. Uh, we should also mention that a couple months ago, uh, news broke that Dave Filoni, has been promoted to uh, creative chief creative officer at Lucasfilm. I'm curious what your reaction to that news was, Patrick Lepic. Well, when you and I were recapping Ahsoka, uh, one of the things I, I remember pointing out was there are lots of ways to criticize uh, Filoni's approach to filmmaking, uh, to telling stories, stories in Star Wars, but he has a vision. Like he has a style. I think it's very George Lucasy, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 for better or worse, uh, but he has a vision uh, and he has an approach, and I think something that Star Wars has been badly missing. Um, it happened a, a bit in the sequel trilogy, and, it's, and certainly post Rise of Skywalker is just walk forward. I don't know what's down that path, but just start walking. And I think there's plenty of reasons that part of what Filoni attempts to do, maybe it doesn't work, but he's got a vision. And at this point with Star Wars, I just rather see, go take a whack at it. Like, see, see what happens. Like it's a Star Wars can be anything. And so if for some reason the Filoni stuff falls kind of flat, I mean, there's plenty of easy ways to hit the reset button in a universe that is that flexible. All right. All that stuff Patrick just said, I want you as a listener to hang on to all that. That's a lot of positivity, a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) All right. Uh, You know, just cherish and nurture those feelings. Uh, Because I'll just say I thought it was, you know, for me personally, terrible news that Filoni has been put in charge. I, I have been really unimpressed with everything I've seen. Uh, that my, of which I understand he has masterminded like Ahsoka. I, some great moments, you know, some cool action scenes. Didn't hate it, but uh, not what I would say great television or great storytelling. Um, and in fact, frequently laughably terrible storytelling. Um, Dave Filoni, from what I can tell, seems to be somebody who is obsessed with Star Wars past and Star Wars middles, <laughs> um, like filling in the gaps between certain things that happen. Very little I have seen tells me that he is a good caretaker for Star Wars' future. Um, To do interesting, bold, new things with the franchise, uh, I've seen nothing that indicates that he's a good person to do that. Andor is an example of something that I think literally will just never get made again. 
uh, under Dave Filoni. Like it just, it would, it matches nothing of what he has created before. And it is also, in my opinion, the greatest thing that Star Wars has made over the course of the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And even Mandalorian, which a lot of people say, oh, it's like fresh and interesting. You know, it is... Uh, f- from what I have seen of the Mandalorian, which is admittedly very little, right? I, I basically just watched the first season. Uh, it has felt to me just as self-referential and just as stuck in the past and interested in kind of rehashing ideas and iconography of the past as everything that's come since then uh, and or accepted. So I, uh, when I heard that he was going to be in charge, I, the, my reaction was Star Wars is just not going to be part of my life anymore after and or season two which hasn't come out yet but like that's probably going to be the last thing that i really get excited about in the star wars universe and that was really sad for me you know so anyway uh maybe you know you you never know what's going to happen in the future like maybe dave filoni or john favreau or whoever else is in charge are going to decide i'm going to take the franchise in a different direction but nothing i've seen so far indicates that that's the case and they've had years of chances to to try something new and interesting that just hasn't no, no, none of which has materialized in my opinion um so mandalorian and grogu as for the movie i understand why they're doing it i honestly hope it works like it really feels like this is a it's just d- despite everything i've just said it's sad to see a once great film franchise struggle so badly like yeah. there have been so many aborted attempts at making movies um I'm thinking of Ryan Johnson's trilogy that will never happen. It will never happen. <laughs> no. Um, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss were going to make a Star Wars movie at one point. Uh, Patty Jenkins released a, uh, <laughs> a teaser trailer for Star Wars Rogue Squadron at one point. That, it, that, that movie was supposed to come out, I think, last month, by the way. Uh, so... There, it's, it's sad to see. A, I remember. I'm old enough to remember when Star Wars came out. Like, clear the books. That was going to be the movie event of December of that year. And now they're struggling to even make any, literally anything. Uh, and that's just sad to see. So, for the sake of just once great film franchises being restored to their former glory, uh, I hope it works. And it seems like a, as sure a bet as any. Patrick Lepek, thanks for listening to that mini rant uh, but <laughs> I, well, but i think you i think you reflect where a lot of um a lot of star wars fans are at and i think the feloni again i don't i don't really celebrate that choice necessarily but to your point the creative paralysis this franchise has been under especially in the last couple of years especially post rise of skywalker it's it's less that I think Filoni is going to execute anything particularly interesting as much as sometimes just just do the damn like just execute something. Mm-hmm. I'm poking it with a stick. Just ship something. Do you know, something. And this and is it, where the standards have fallen to is just get something made and then I mean, we'll it's go from there. Star Wars. Like it's Star Wars. And you know, I, I do wonder if the Disney plusification of everything, which has done terrible damage to to Marvel as a brand um, in their own production. Like, I think Star Wars has been hurt by like, hey, we've got a, you know, and it started with the, the original, like, let's do a Rogue One. Let's do a Boba Fett. You know what I mean? Like, just do more. And like the, the, single, the single most damaging thing that has happened to Star Wars probably in the last like 10, 15 years was do more of them. When the defining aspect of Star Wars over the past 40 years has been... They're rare and like, and it's an event. 
And the moment you kind of took that away, I, I do think on some level you started chipping it away at what made Star Wars Star Wars in the first place. Mm, was like the the scarcity was a key yes. component of it. Interesting, yeah. right? I do remember the time before Phantom Menace came out, right? There, there was all this mystique around it because it, it was decades, right? It was decades between those movies. And, uh, and during that time, you know, a whole extended universe sprang up, which, by the way, I think is kind of... It's it's kind of weird to me, you know. Uh, I was talking with uh, uh, my my friend Peter Serretta, and, and I was saying how it's weird that a lot of people are speculating Dave Filoni's movie, not Mandalorian and Grogu, but this other movie uh, that's going to tie together Ahsoka and Clone Wars and all that stuff is going to be called Heir to the Empire. And Heir to the Empire is a book by Timothy Zahn, which I have read decades, probably when I was in I don't know middle school. I read that book, and it was awesome. It was an awesome book. Uh, and at one point, Star Wars declared, hey, uh, the extended universe is no longer true. We're calling it something called Star Wars Legends instead. Uh, and they kind of erased the extended universe, but now they're bringing back parts of it, basically, which is uh, like Grand Admiral Thrawn is going to be in it probably. And so I just think that's weird. And then m- my friend Peter responded, well, David, that's why they're called Legends. Maybe they <laughs> happened. Maybe they didn't. You know, very smart branding. Star Wars Legends, so I, I thought that was astute. Um, but yeah, Patrick, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you that uh, it is part of it was that it, it, oh, anyway, the point I was making was that for all these years, people were just speculating like, oh, what's the, is there ever going to be another one? Like, what's going to happen? And ironically, we have reached that state again, only uh, they've announced like 10 movies and uh, maybe one of them will be made. So in any case, you mentioned the Disneyification, Disney Plusification of Star Wars, and I think what you're trying to say is we are guessing that because Star Wars and Marvel stuff is available so readily at home now on Disney Plus, it makes the theatrical event less special. It makes people less likely to turn out for the theatrical event. Um, maybe that's true, but it, it is, I think, worth remarking. These were two of the greatest business acquisitions of all time, Marvel and Lucasfilm. And I do think it's notable that after some really big financial successes, legendary historical financial successes, um, they're both really struggling right now, right? Like, I think uh, there's not going to be any Marvel movies come out this year other than Deadpool 3. Yep. Uh, And that is the first time, the fewest Marvel movies that's come out in any year for a really long time. Since um, um, post, post-COVID, post right? So Endgame mm, uh, yeah, happens, yeah. and then COVID hits, you know, begins yeah. the, the year after, which I believe created like an entire year where there there wasn't right. a, a Marvel film. But that was that was by accident, not yes. by on purpose. And, and this, since, the writers... Since tr- there was a, you know, world-altering pandemic. Right, uh, right. This is the fewest number of Marvel films, right? So... Uh, and yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, and, and, and here you have the writer strike also playing right. an important factor, but, uh, you cannot separate the writer strike is perhaps ends up being a convenient excuse for a, a company having to completely rethink its entire creative strategy. At least star Wars has the advantage of, well, we don't have that much going on, so we can't, we can't constantly <laughs> disappoint you. Whereas Marvel, because the engine is just always moving, it's whatever changes they're making none of them pay off for years and in the meantime it's just oh well put that other thing out the door that we're not really happy with and like another round of bad headlines like yeah so star wars 
you cancel a project, yeah, everyone makes fun of the fact that you can't get a movie out the door, but it's not like a critical commercial failure. It's just a bad series of headlines and blogs and trades, whereas Marvel right. just keeps taking body blow after right. that body is a, blow. That is a $100 million loss you're taking if uh, yes. the Marvels doesn't do well or something along those lines, right? So uh, so it's very different. But but uh, odds on whether this Mandalorian and Grogu movie are going to happen, Patrick Lepic, I, I would I, say 80% plus is my guess, you know? I, I think they also got to know They've been announcing a lot of these things. And so they got to know they're like, hey, we actually have to make one of these happen if we're going to keep announcing them. Right. So uh, I say 80% plus. What do you think, Patrick? I know. I, 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 yeah, I'd say 80 to 80. I, I, you're you're like, it sounds like you're like 100%. You're like, I'm 100%. I think this movie comes out like, like you have a formula in place, you have actors in place, you've shot versions of this before, you're just doing the bigger (laughs) one. You know what I mean? Like all the other components, like even the other, like, you know, the Ray led one is falling into a very familiar, like toxic fan base. Like it's, there's just so much going on with these other projects. Uh, this one just feels like the reason it was announced as boring as it might seem. I think boring is the point. Like this is, we know it's a success. People like these characters. Pedro Pascal is bigger than ever as an actor. You know what I mean? Like right. this movie will come at the right time. It'll come around last of us season two. You know what I mean? Like it's, there are some things in the mix that, like are going to benefit this project. So that's why I, I think it'll happen. I, I, I would bet money it'll happen for me. It's just from a quality standpoint, I know what the floor is. I just don't know what the ceiling is. Yeah. And that's what kind of remains to be seen. I, I do have to say, I'm feeling like some flop sweat coming off of Disney plus these days, you know, like, or, or, or the whole like enterprise. Uh, I think, you know, it, part of it snapped into place when they did the werewolf by night in color. Do you remember that? Like yes. Michael Giacchino made a Marvel werewolf by night. Very good. And then the a year later, they said, "What if we did Werewolf by Night in color?" And it's like, okay, well, like part of the whole point was that it wasn't gonna be in black and white, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like it, it almost feels like, as you said, they're spinning a wheel or they're looking around and saying, "We gotta get a Star Wars movie into theaters. It's been too long." And they're like, "Well, we have, as you said, we have all the sets, we have the volume, and we have the actors, and the director is interested. Let's what? Hey." Why don't we put Mandalorian into the? What is stopping us? And they realize that the answer is nothing. So that's what they're doing here. So anyway, I feel like you know a little bit of desperation, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe it's all very orderly and in control. Uh, just not the impression I get these days. <laughs> no, we'll no I, I'm inclined to believe the, the, yeah. the lack of good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, those are some thoughts on The Mandalorian and Grogu, the newest movie by John Favreau in the Star Wars universe that will hopefully be hitting theaters sometime in the next few years. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Folks, it is time to get to our uh, reviews of recent television episodes. I wanted to share with people how this is going to work. So every week we're going to talk about some television episodes. This week we're going to talk about Echo episodes one and two. Uh, True Detective Episode 1 and Monarch Legacy of Monsters, the finale. Uh, I, I want to let people know what we're going to talk about next week as well. So you can like prepare. People have asked for that. So next week, we'll be talking about True Detective Episode 2. We'll be talking about the rest of Echo uh, Season 1. Uh, so that's what you can look forward to next week. And uh, we are always open to what your feedback is on this format, how it works. We're going to start by sharing our overall non-spoilery thoughts on each show and then move pretty quickly into spoilers. I'm also going to play a trailer at the beginning of every conversation. So if you're like fast forwarding, you can kind of find where each segment is. Um, but yeah, we're trying a new thing. We're interested to hear what you think about it. Let us know, decodingtv at gmail.com. Having said all that, Patrick Klepek, let's get into our conversation about Echo episodes one and two. I see everything that you are. I always have. Patrick Klepek, let's talk about Echo episodes one and two. Episode one entitled Chaffa, episode two entitled Loak. Uh, I will read the description of these episodes from the website that I streamed them at. Uh, episode one, after her mother's tragic death, young Maya is forced to leave her hometown of Tamaha, Oklahoma, and move to New York City where she meets Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Kingpin, who raises her to be a ruthless assassin. After learning that Fisk had her father killed, Maya kills Kingpin and flees New York City. In episode two, Maya enlists the help of her disapproving family to take down Fisk's army. Meanwhile, she begins experiencing strange visions, end quote. So that's what happens in episode one and two. Patrick Klepek, let's start by talking about whether we thought these episodes were good or not and whether you think people should watch them. What do you think, Patrick? I think it's fascinating. Uh, do you remember what is what is the the new branding that Marvel is attaching, starting with Echo? Um, Marvel Spotlight. Now, the the the, uh, the Marvel Spotlight logo appears on uh, the beginning of every episode. There's a new Michael Giacchino theme that happens when you hear about it. Marvel Spotlight was announced several months ago, and I'm going to read the the description of what Marvel Spotlight is. Uh-huh. From one of the top Google results for the words Marvel Spotlight. This is from ScreenRant.com. Uh, with the premiere of Echo, Marvel Studios is introducing a new banner, Marvel Spotlight, which will highlight content that does not require background knowledge mm-hmm. of the Marvel Cinematic Universe story arcs. And by the way, that fra- that sentence was bold. Will highlight content that does not require background knowledge. This represents a major shift in Marvel's approach, which through the MCU timeline has been building upon previous movie shows and characters through lines, most notably in the Infinity Saga arc, which was the franchise's major plotline through MCU Phase One through Three. End quote. So, uh, Marvel Spotlight, interesting. 
that it does not require any background <laughs> knowledge of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So anyway, you you were saying, Patrick Klepek, this extremely standalone independent story that does not require any background knowledge. Go ahead. <laughs> right. And in, and, and uh, the other uh, major contrast is uh, all the episodes are dropping at once, right? Yes. So you're, you're, you can watch episodes one through five right away um, as opposed to sort of like the weekly event viewing that Marvel um, or Disney Plus in general has done with their television shows uh, since the launch of Disney Plus and, and all these Marvel and Star Wars shows have rolled out. Um, I bring all that up because I agree. In theory, that sounds like a really interesting idea to give creative freedom and reduce some of the weight of expectations on every one of these shows. And yet one of the first messages I got from one David Chen upon beginning to watch this show was, Hey man, I didn't watch Hawkeye. What the hell is going on in this show? Um, uh, because yes, like this, the show, I think eventually gets to a place where it feels r- like roughly self-contained in the geography and where it is. It's a rough road getting there uh, to where it can feel like it has established that sort of independence from the broader Marvel universe. I broadly like uh, the shows so far. I think, unfortunately, where I probably land on is that I I like what it's trying to do more than I like what it's actually doing. On on paper, there are so many cool ideas. The way this like character, like, you know, doesn't speak, like uses like sign language. Like a lot of characters are, are speaking uh, in sign. Like they are, there are whole arguments, like emotional arcs between characters that are happening, communicated in a way that I just haven't seen in television before, let alone in sort of a superhero story that has to often like be full of bombast and explosion. And like to ha- like have to communicate that in this fundamentally different way, I think is, cool the idea of a character that has some sort of supernatural communication history with their ancestors is a unique idea in and of itself there's like a really cool fight in the middle of of the first episode um i just don't know that it all quite can i i don't know where it's like quite going i'm I'm having trouble emotionally connecting to the arc of echo as a character um and i did watch hawkeye so i i am like i've watched everything that marvel has put out i am completely up to date, like emotionally, spiritually, uh, physically with everything <laughs> they've put out. Um, I think mostly it just speaks to some of the convoluted uh, storytelling and, and choppy storytelling that has defined a lot of Marvel television, um, it, which the quality is sort of all over the place. Um, and it rarely feels like it's something all moving on the track in the same direction. And so I think it's such an interesting show and I, I guess sort of what I like wish for this show in general is like, I kind of, I don't think I'll ever make a show like this again. doesn't seem like the, like, like it doesn't seem like the kind of thing Marvel would probably green light um, in the direction they're going, but I wish it had been in production like two years from now where it's like, it really could have been wholly separate from anything. It could have just been conceptualized on its own. Cause I think that weight hurts yourself getting into it. And then the first two episodes are like, Good, but not great. Um, and I, I don't know where the, the last three will, will go from there. But how about you? Yeah, uh, I think, as I have, you can kind of tell from my tone, using Marvel Spotlight in this way to introduce this story is, I don't know what the vision for that brand is, but to use it on Echo, I think, is ludicrous based on everything I've seen. Like, 
uh, the description I've read of what Marvel Spotlight is, there was a big uh, PR beat around this a few weeks ago where Deadline and Screen Rant and Slash, everyone wrote like Marvel Spotlight is like non-interconnected stories. It's you don't need any background knowledge. Meanwhile, literally the first 30 minutes is, in my opinion, virtually completely incomprehensible if you have not had some background knowledge of what's going on in Marvel. Uh, and so I, I, I literally don't even know what they're trying to accomplish. Are they saying Marvel spotlight is actually different than what they had originally sold it as, or did they just do a really bad job of launching the first Marvel spotlight? I think they're show? retrofitting something as Marvel goes through sort of a creative crisis, right? Like right. It, this, this sounds like a key, like, you know, originally when echo was announced to be a like, Hey, it, it's going to come out, you know, every week in the same way. It was like, oh, are they burying a bad show? Which is, wow, that's a really bad look for like the kind of marginalized characters they are like like portraying in this to be the one that like guests were unceremoniously just dumping this one out right. and giving it a different branding. And so I think there's been a lot of massaging of that message to try yeah. and like convey like, no, this isn't like a reflect like that we don't care about characters like this. You know, Kevin Feige has gone out of his way, you know, be like. I mean, they, there was a whole PR campaign essentially privately by Disney to like throw under the bus a previous executive of theirs. It was like, well, he was kind of a racist and, and a misogynist and wouldn't let us make characters like Black uh, Perlmutter, right, was the, the, yeah. the executive. Uh, and so I don't – yeah, you're absolutely correct. This is a – I think it does a disservice to Echo as a character. I think it does a disservice to this branding for whatever it's attempting to do because it really feels like they came up in a corner with a branding and an explanation for a path forward and then just shoved this show into it regardless right. of whether it actually fits where it might go in the future. It's very bizarre. And even putting it, let's say I have seen everything in Marvel and I love everything in Marvel. Um, I still think it's a disastrous way to open the show. I still think the way they opened the show was very alienating and bizarre um, because they're just showing you scenes from other shows without any explanation, you know, just do a previously on have a relative, do a voiceover, have Maya explain to someone what happened, like do something. Uh, but they're just literally showing random scenes, not random, but like yeah. time sequential scenes from, <laughs> from, uh, from other shows and like hoping that you will glean enough from them that you can kind of get to, to where you need to go. And uh, it's bad storytelling. Like we, there are ways to catch people up and we've seen Marvel do variously, you know, do um, sometimes a good job, sometimes a bad job of catching people up. This is a bad job. They, they did a bad job catching people up and there's only five episodes in the show. And so 30 minutes of one of the episodes being that bad is like a significant portion of the entire show's runtime. Um, so putting that aside, it's fine. Everything yeah. else is fine. Um, and in fact, there is some actually really creative stuff going on in this show. Uh, the beginning of episode two opens with a, a scene that happens in 1200 AD uh, of characters playing Choctaw stickball. And it's unlike anything you have ever seen on television before. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, like, even if this show just gave me that, that's like a really interesting uh idea and execution and um so there's some really cool elements about it uh but it also feels like it suffers from a lot of what marvel's tv shows suffer from which is 
feels like it needs to be interconnected and then also ultimately feels like it might be inconsequential depending on what they want to do with the next TV shows and movies because they can't change the status quo too much. You can't have planet Earth explode or a celestial hand come out of the thing because you'd have to address it in future movies. Oh, wait. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't have like Kingpin can't die. Like right. I know they're making a, you know a new Daredevil show, and I'm right. sure he is going to be a villain. Even though theoretically we thought Kingpin died, and and that's the other thing too is like it's connected to like two versions of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like the Daredevil version, which then like carried over into Hawkeye, and you know, and then now the, like the MCU that everyone knows. Anyway, so I think it not only doesn't do anything to assuage concerns about, oh, I need to do a bunch of homework to get, get into the show. It actively leans into how hard it is um, for better or for worse in ways that I think are actually like really clumsy and counterproductive and, and um, unforced errors is what I would describe it as. So those are some overall thoughts. I, I don't think the show is bad or anything, but the opening is almost catastrophically terrible and the, the rest of the show is fine, you know, like uh, based on what we've seen so far. Well, you're certainly not going to – there's nothing in that intro to this suggest to you. If this branding in its most idealized form was, look, not everyone wants to stay on the train where they're like keeping up yeah. with these interconnected stories, which seem like they're now about to shift more to the to the films than they are to the television stuff as they kind of like move the dynamic around of how Marvel tells stories in theory. But there's nothing about this show that you would go – well, yeah, I know you don't really like the superhero stuff and you don't keep up with those those movies anymore, but like this show is really interesting and it's only five episodes. Some of the episodes are only 35 minutes long. Like you could just watch this and have a good time and you don't have to care about like what's happening in the Marvels. Like they do not accomplish, like there's nothing right. to suggest that, these first that two is episodes. The goal, if that is the goal, they do not accomplish that. Right? I do I not think they've accomplished that so far and I don't get the sense that that's going to happen in the next couple episodes. You know, I can, I can be swayed in any number of directions. Like I, I want the show to be good. I'd like to be better than I, how I feel about it now, but it doesn't seem like it's, that's a, a cool idea to have like self-contained yes. or even that. their own, <laughs> or, or even their own little universes, right? Like in, in many ways, the Netflix shows became their own little Netflix. They call it, you know, the, the Netflix, like Marvel cinematic universe. Cause like right. those characters overlapped and they felt like they were in the same place, but it was small and exciting and so like, even when those characters did overlap it felt i mean they worked up to a defender now the defender show was pretty bad but uh like there is a way you can do that in a smaller pocket and that's not what's happening here like uh and so you know not doesn't fully yeah. accomplish it here but um i'm hoping at least the last three episodes contain something like you said more scenes um that are are novel and interesting and uh could could fit you know, I posted about this on threads, right? Uh, threads, by the way, I have found to be a very terrible experience because what happens is you post uh, you post an opinion and then Facebook slash Meta figures out how to serve that opinion to the people who hate that opinion the most. And then you get like just inundated with all this criticism of your opinion. And uh, in a way that is much more rapid than it was on Twitter. Like with Twitter, mm. things would need to marinate for like 12 hours before you start getting like endless bounds of hate. But- <laughs> Uh, but I, I said on Twitter on threads exactly what I said on this podcast, which is, hey, baffling decision to start this Marvel Spotlight thing with the way they did it. Um, and I got a bunch of people saying, well, I thought Marvel Spotlight was more like, you know, street level stuff as opposed to like intergalactic stake stuff. You're wrong. You're wrong. OK, if that's what you thought, because or or they uh, they didn't message it correctly, because if you look. 
I literally read the description from Screen Rant and many, many other places describe it exactly the same way, which mm-hmm. is Marvel Spotlight is doesn't require knowledge of the MCU. It's disconnected from everything else. It's not just like lower level stakes or any such shit like that. You're freaking wrong if that's what you thought. Or they did a really bad job getting their PR talking points to everyone when this thing launched a few months ago. Uh, one of those is true, but I did not misinterpret what Marvel Spotlight was supposed to be. Um, arguably, they did. <laughs> and they made it. And they made it. All right. Uh, Patrick Klepek, let's talk about what actually happened in the episode. Like, Is there anything you want to highlight about uh, what happens in the first two episodes of the show? Um, it, it's What's interesting is like every episode seems to open at some point in the past, right? And like, mm-hmm. be, you know, be part of some kind of legend, which I think is just really like a cool way to open it. The, the Choctaw stickball in particular was just like, wow, the way they shot it in ultra wide angle was really, really cool. And I just like, oh, wow, I haven't, I haven't seen any sports shot like this period, let alone this particular sport that I've never witnessed. Um, so there's some really creative decisions happening. The action is solid, you know, throughout the first two episodes, like, uh, I didn't think it was particularly amazing. I didn't think it was particularly bad or anything. It's just like, hey, these are like really solid down the middle action scenes, one of which is made to look like a long continuous shot, which is kind of a classic Marvel TV show move. Uh, the only other thing I want to highlight is Maya is kind of an antihero, you know, in a way that I think is yeah. rare in MCU stuff. She shoots Kingpin in the eye. Um Thinking that would kill him because that's a very logical thing. Most people who get shot in the head die. Uh, not all, not all, but most people. I try get to shot avoid it as, as yeah. much as possible. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, um, uh, but that didn't kill him, and so against all odds, he survives, and that's probably going to become a problem. But then she, the the second episode involves her hijacking a cargo train to locate a munitions container and then plant a bomb in one of the crates that she later detonates. Uh, to kind of flummox uh, Fisk's plans. Uh, but she also just kills a bunch of people, right? Like, <laughs> she just, mur- yeah. just straight up murders all these dudes, right? And yes, they were bad dudes, and they're probably going to do bad things with the, the munitions, but uh, she's kind of cold-blooded in a way that I think other Marvel characters aren't. You know, w- w- any thoughts on Maya as a character so far, Patrick Klepek? No, I agree. The, mo- the most interesting part of her character is... No, obviously she, she, you know, the way in which she was removed from this community she was originally was very traumatic. She seems to carry that trauma. She hasn't, the, the way she finds her back home is a lot of people she hasn't seen in literally 20 years as a refrain. Like this is how you could have had a chance to come back. You became an adult. You could have come back to this community and you chose not to. And that's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. She meant a lot to this community and the way in which she comes back and, kind of the coldness in which she describes like, like, you know, I'm going after Fisk. I don't care if I'm bringing a war, like a literal war to my hometown, to people I, you know, ostensibly (laughs) care about, you know, I expect. Yeah. She'll learn some some valuable lessons about not bringing a war to your hometown, perhaps. Right. There are multiple characters. I'm like, (laughs) I don't, I don't, I can like the, the you know some characters in particular is like well you're clearly going to die and that's going to soften her up and like <laughs> right, I, like, right. like i can see sort of the arc is going here probably yeah, but yeah. regardless of the, if that's where it ends up i'm with you that between kind of like the like historical ancestral legacy they're pulling on the nature of how they kind of convey her powers or her ability to survive and adapt like power adjacent really just like how does she move through the world um i think is conveyed like 
really well, really interestingly. And and again, I'll, I'll go back to a point from earlier. Like, I'm always fascinated to like whenever we get into an extended dialogue scene, I'm just fascinated to watch how they frame it, how yeah, the actors yeah. work off one another because the way they have to convey heightened emotions to one another is just fundamentally different because the central character like cannot is like is not going to communicate in the way that like the language of like most most characters are going to be in a television or a film and so it's a unique challenge from like a storytelling point of view and i think they've found good solutions and 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 interesting ways to convey longer stretches of dialogue in a way that i think could have fallen really flat or like because the challenge to them is like how do we not make this boring and i think they do a really good job of conveying echo's emotions like it's really interesting how the entire community around her also speaks to her like like uh, you can tell they grew up with her and so they learned how to sign but i just think all that stuff is is really compelling and i think part of the reason i found myself disappointed by the show is it's such a unique set of circumstances to tell a story and so the parts where it falls flat feel really disappointing compared to like the set of tools, like the kind of material you're working with. Um, Cause it's just rare to have a character like this. And so yeah. if it's a rare opportunity, do something strong with that storytelling. And I just, it feels like the we're, big, yeah. the big story is going to be pretty formulaic from here through mm, five. Mm, I see. So I was going to ask, where does it fall flat for you in kind of your, the broader story in your opinion, right? Yeah. I'm just not sure mm. how much, how interested I am in this war with, with Kingpin. And I, again, I watched Hawkeye. Like yeah. I understand the betrayal. I understand the, I don't know. It's just, that part's not really. Yeah. Cause you I'd much rather have five episodes of her being awkward back home. Right. And none, none of the, Fisk none stuff. of the Kingpin like, stuff. None right. of the Kingpin Cause, stuff cause, needs to be here. Cause you need to be like, the show relies on you being emotionally invested in, can she best Kingpin? Right. And it's, it's like, even for you as somebody who watched Hawkeye and watched all the other Marvel stuff, it's like, that's, that's a hard investment to make at this stage. Um, I think. Well, so. Again, I'm, I'm more invested in what is, what is Daredevil going to do with, you know what I mean? Like I, I just, yeah. I didn't get enough time with Echo in the Hawkeye show. I yeah. got enough time to, to be interested in the character and like, Oh, I wonder what you could do with this. I'm just not fundamentally all that interested in this arc with her and, and Kim, even as much as I think Hawkeye and, you know, obviously you don't have the context, but, I think they sell pretty well their relationship. Um, part of that is like, you know, the acting of Kingpin is just like remains fantastic. Like such, like, like such, such a good actor. Like, like it really fits the character tremendously, but I just, I'd rather, I want to fish out a water story in, in this town with like all these interesting actors and yeah. like this character that has to communicate and move through the world differently there's tension. You can find tension there. You gotta go right. you know, find a bully in that town that she has to work with. I don't. I just. I think the right, kingpin right. starve stuff. Have her really, solve like a small problem. You know, that's like give me a small town. Ta- yeah, a right. small town yeah. tension as opposed to all those big old problems in New York with kingpin. I think that if anything, that is still speaking to this broader problem. It's not the world exploding, but it's still that like bigger scale ish, like kind of like conflict. They just is not necessary to tell a good story. Yeah. It's a win-win to do it that way too, because it probably costs less money, you know, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do want to give a shout out to uh, Alakwa Cox, who is the actor who plays Maya. Um, she is a deaf indigenous woman and first time actor, right? Had if not I acted so in as well. anything, had, had not really acted in that much prior to uh, appearing in Hawkeye in 2021, you know, and now she is leading uh, an entire season of television 
Um, so just an amazing journey. And it's it's kind of remarkable that it's it's a thing that's on television that we can all watch on Hulu right now. So uh, it, it's worth checking out just because it's something quite different in many ways than what Marvel has done. Other than how disconnected the first uh, disjointed the first half hour feels <laughs> and also the overall arc of the season one. So, yeah. Anyway, those are our thoughts on Echo episodes one and two. We'll be back next week to talk about Echo, Echo episodes three through five and finish off this season of television. Let's get to our conversation about True Detective Night Country, episode one. What happened in the last case you worked with tomorrow? That was good. Until it wasn't. They were too late. There was nothing we could do. I'm working on this new case. A missing scientist. Found on the edge of the villages. Frozen solid. What do you want? It's been six years. Why are you here? Because you both know what really happened. I need my help. I've seen that before. Years ago. Fine. I'm just going to do this one thing. Work together to close this case. And that's it for the two of us. It is. So, you want in or what? Let's talk about True Detective Night Country Episode 1. I'm going to read the plot summary from the episode description. When eight scientists vanish without a trace, state trooper Evangeline Navarro tries to convince police chief Liz Danvers that the case is connected to the unsolved murder of a local activist. Patrick Klepek, I think this is the most enthusiastic you have been about wanting to cover a show since Twisted Metal. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, I'm being sarcastic um, about Twisted Metal. But yeah, you were really into this. I mean, what is your relationship with True Detective? And should people watch Night Country based on what you've seen so far? Well, it's funny because my enthusiasm for the season has literally nothing to do with True Detective. Um, it's instead the showrunner. Um, is Issa Lopez? That is uh, correct. Issa Lopez. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite horror films of wow. the last 10 years, Tigers Are Not Afraid, um, is, a, is a movie she wrote and directed. Uh, it's it's a, in a tr- just a tremendous film. And never in my fucking life would I thought <laughs> she hasn't done anything. I mean, she's been writing things attached to right. projects, yada, yada. But like the first thing that she has made since that film is season four of True <laughs> Detective. So when she was announced, it was just because Tigers Are Not Afraid was critically acclaimed. Guillermo del Toro was out there. Like, this movie's amazing. It's an upcoming filmmaker. I was like, what is she going to do next? And I was just confused, curious, interested. Uh, why, why attach yourself to this project? And so I've just been fascinated for literal years at this point to find out why this, why her, what would bring you to this story? And so. With True Detective, I, like a lot of people, adored the first season. Was less uh, frustrated with the end than a lot of people were. I, same, same. I, I thought I the was, ending was completely fine. Completely I, fine. You know, if you're asking my heart of hearts, do I wish the cos- cosmic horror occurred? Absolutely. I was rooting for that to happen. But I didn't find myself upset that um, some of the, what is the nature of reality? What is, uh, either, are there supernatural elements? The lack of any sort of uh, that appearing at the end of that season, I, I didn't find that to be a disappointment. I thought it resolved very well and was an exceptional season of television um, and just lost all interest uh, after that. Like I watched an episode or two of season two, 
didn't do anything for me as much as true detective tried to get me back in for season three. We're like, Oh, we're going to like, we're just going to keep hiring interesting actors. It just, it just was not enough to get me back in. Like I fell off season two so hard that it was hard for me to imagine with the same sort of creative teams in place. I did. I just didn't feel like it had the juice to get me interested again. And so here you have, you know, a really interesting visionary filmmaker coming to make a season of television in which I just wanted to see what they brought to a crime story. Uh, it's like so emotionally different than Tigers Are Not Afraid, and uh, you know, so that's that's where I, that's where I arrive at this show. How about you? What is your what is your journey to 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 Night Country? Yeah, pretty much the same. You know, True Detective season one I thought was just a home run. Thought the ending was fine, then completely fell off the show uh, in True Detective season two. Got like one and a half episodes in True Detective season two, and thought, you know, I don't need to do this. Uh, Nick Pizzolatto, the creator, has admitted he didn't have enough time to write season two, and so it really showed, and never got back on the train for season three, but. This season has two really interesting uh, lead actors, Jodie Foster, kind of in Silence of the Lamb modes, uh, Callie Rice, who is a former boxer turned actor, and that's just like an interesting combination. A lot of people are saying that uh, this is like a mirror image of season one of the show. Instead of the hot and humid South, it's in literally one of the coldest places on earth. Instead of two male leads, it's two female leads. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to probably, um, for, the, for that reason alone, it's really interesting to see how the show may or may not be echoing earlier seasons. Uh, so I was already kind of interested based off of who's the talent involved. Issa Lopez, I haven't seen any of her work, but I've heard great things. Uh, and so... I was already kind of interested. Then the reviews started pouring in and they were really rapturous. And so I thought, hey, we got to do this thing. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about episode one. You know, did it live up to what you were looking for, Patrick Lepic? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am like completely uh, <laughs> other than, OK, the, the 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 introductory shot to this show mm-hmm. with some not particularly great visual <laughs> effects for I think some caribou I believe are the the animals running around um so I, that felt a little eh, but whatever broad strokes I'm all in like I I love the central mystery that is set up I love the world I love the like bits we've gotten in about the community and the history that everyone has like it's a small town like clearly a lot of bad things have happened here are going to happen here. Jodie Foster is awesome. She's just not an actor we see all that much of these days. Since yeah. very she selective. was in the Netflix movie Nyad, and she was really good in that. You know that was just here, uh, right? That, that just year. happened yeah. recently, yeah. right? But yeah. but you know, but someone that you're not. She's yeah. not acting all the time. Selective with projects, and so whenever I see you know see her again is a delight. And so to have her in this horror mode again, um, or horror adjacent, you know, it's kind of unclear how far we're, we're going to go, uh, which is part of the fun. Cause I think a lot of what's really beautiful and fun about this season is that I think it probably works completely fine. If you have no connection to true detective whatsoever, right. Yes. You have no sense of the, the themes um, like what, what ideas it was playing with in the first right. season. It's and the yet, anti, it's the anti uh, Marvel spotlights echo. <laughs> in and that yet, way. <laughs> it is clear that it is, well aware of what season one was doing and Mm -hmm. it is well aware of the ideas it was playing with the uh 
kind of fanciful and at times like fun ways. It was like playing with what are we watching? How far could this world go? It is, again, it rewards if you've seen season one from like a big picture th- thematic sort of feeling and the ideas it was playing with. But it isn't necessarily like, hey, we're going to pay off existing lore. At least I don't, th- at least I don't think so. I don't think that's the direction that it's going. And I just love the tone. Like it is just ominous and upsetting and like the little sequence where someone like runs across the screen really fast. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know where this is going. It's an all time great closer shot. Like the way the episode ends mm, is just yeah, like, Oh yeah. my God, I have to know like what's happening next. And, and you were, you were very kind. I, I told you it took all every fiber of my being to not hit play on the second episode. Like, Should we record our conversation early so you can watch? I was like, no, I will be one with the masses. I will wait yeah. until the second episode. But yes, I think and I, it's, I am all in, all on board. I, I think it's a an amazing first episode of television that just has me on the edge of my seat to see what's next. Yeah. Uh, for the record, Patrick and I have access to the episodes early, but we do not watch ahead. That's the thing that we don't do because we don't want to give hints about what might happen in the future. So uh, we are I like waiting in- too. Like it's, yeah. I'm a bi- I, I love... I'm a huge actual literal fan of the wait between mm. an episode um, wow. as opposed to being able to, to watch them all at once. Uh, I think interesting. I don't feel the same. I wait because I have to. Uh, oh, no, 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 or, no, no, Or because no. I think it will make for a better podcast. You know, that's why, that's why I wait. So uh, I agree with you, Patrick. I think it's a really solid opening episode. One of the things I love the most about it is the sense of place. This is happening in Ennis, Alaska, and you really feel like the show does a good job of capturing what the small town vibe is there. Everyone knows each other. People have problems, many of which are related to the fact that they live in Ennis, Alaska. <laughs> and so, uh, and so it, it does a great job of capturing place, which is something that I think is a core part of what makes true detective an anthology series. One of the unifying ideas behind the series is like, we need to capture this like location in a really interesting and compelling way. So uh, let's talk about some of the the stuff that happens in the episode. Uh, any anything specifically stick out to you? There's this mystery of uh, this woman. You know, uh, Trooper Evangeline Navarro believes uh, Anne Kotok, uh, who's a indigenous woman who was stabbed to death and had her tongue cut out, is uh, because she's protesting uh, a local mine. Uh, that that murder, which is unsolved after six years, is related to this disappearance of these researchers. Uh, I like that you get a sense of how good of a detective uh, uh, Jodie Foster's character is really quickly. John Hawks is like a ticking time bomb, I think, because he <laughs> she just she just has no compunction about humiliating him over and over again. Mm-mm, and so mm-mm. I just feel like he's going to snap at some point. My wife and I were debating, do we think that we're going to, uh, the plot line or the timeline of the show is going to make it so that we actually see what happens with John Hawks' mail order bride at some point this season? Um, you know mm, I, I, I think one can only likely, hope i think it's likely that plot will i don't know if we'll see that character but i think it's likely that plot will get resolved or moved along meaningfully this season uh is my guess and that it will likely be resolved in such a way that it further emasculates john hawks based on based on how the season has been going um, <laughs> john hawks plays uh, one of uh, Jodie Foster's character's uh, kind of underlings. And mm-hmm. I thought the relationship that John Hawks' son had with Jodie Foster was really interesting. You know, yeah. uh, he clearly has more of an affinity for her than for him and, mm-hmm. you know, looks up to her more. And yet another way in which John Hawks' character is humiliated. Um, 
but yeah, like there's a lot of really interesting character dynamics. Uh, uh, Navarro, you, you, you meet some of Navarro's like loved ones and, um, this dude she sleeps with in like a kind of upsetting sex scene, you know, um, <laughs> that she has with this guy. So yeah, there's like a lot of this little like color of like who these, what these people's lives are like that I thought was very effectively done. Patrick, anything stick out to you about the first episode? Yeah, and what's it's really the sense of place, right? Yeah. I think this does a really great job, like you said, not not just establishing the kind of ways in which these lives are intertwined, overlapped by necessity. Like there's just not that many people here. The geography does not span that far. You don't have a choice. Your lives are going to intersect. And I, I think that part is really well done, but also just the oppressive feeling of yeah. like it feels tight. Like it, you can just like feel like the, the the darkness is is overwhelming. It's uh, a place that people are they're in by circumstance, not by choice. And you can imagine that sort of tension is going to play itself out over and over over the course of the show. And I think it it leads itself to a good place where I don't know we don't know much about the central mystery yet, right? Like some people died under strange circumstances. Um, and you can start doing some theorizing. But it's exciting that what I'm most interested in the show so far is not necessarily like, ah, better start theorizing about this this core murder. It's right. spending a lot of time making these character dynamics work and be interesting so that yeah. I'm sure by the time as we move forward in the show and the core mystery takes over, you get all that payoff from these characters. And I think these I think these core characters are are really good. And I and and as having a director that, you know, comes from horror, like understands tension, I mean, I think you see that play out over and over in like there are so many scenes that even when they're not overtly scary, just I don't know, like are just kind of tense. Like they're just shot in a way that you can tell you have someone that understands the genre that they're that they're playing in. And I, I think it does a really good job of establishing that tone. And then again, like I said, the, the, the payoff at the end where all the, the head stuck in ice is just a, Oh my God, like just an, inc- an incredible piece of imagery. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and, you know, places, a lot of details is how characters interact. It's also just like physically how things look. I thought the, the research station looked, Hey, that seems like what I imagined a research station might look like. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and, uh, and really makes you feel how, oppressive living in a place like this might be but also you can kind of see uh, part of why people might want to do something like this Mm -hmm. you know that there is some appeal to something like this there is a really interesting subplot where this woman named rose who lives on the town's outskirts is the one who discovers the bodies because she's led there by a mysterious apparition Uh question mark who we of unknown provenance we don't know who travis is at this point we don't know if he's related to her i don't think or if they were married or whatever um, but I think that's probably going to come into play at some point as well. We'll see about that. Um, so yeah, it definitely is an episode that sets up some really interesting central mysteries that sets up some really interesting character dynamics. Uh, anything else you want to mention about true detective night country episode one? I, okay. So just in general, I want to watch the second episode, but from folks that, we're t- have already, wa- you know, like the screeners yeah. going out, you could watch the whole season yeah. if you're a critic and if you have there, access to There are going to be six episodes, I believe, of this uh, this season, yeah. The vibe I've gotten from some, like, multiple people have said this, was like, there's going to be a moment, and it's, apparently it's the, essentially the beginning of the second episode. They're like, 
There's going to be a moment where this show asks, are you on board? You, like, are you ready to keep going? Um, and they're paying, I don't know what it is. I have no idea what that means, but there's mm-hmm. some sort of, it was described as gnarly. And there's like a gnarly thing that happens um, essentially fairly early in the second episode. That's like, hey, you ready? Are you going to keep walking down this show? And I'm I like, I know I, I don't need to be asked. I know I, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just revving me up at, at, even more. But I, that's I'm I'm excited to see because the way folks have talked about it is that it's not just it's not just a show with like a bunch, you know, a bunch of gnarly horror. But like it is combining that with a good core story and mystery. And to have that just be six like tight episodes is just that's really exciting. I'm I'm I'm, I'm just very curious to see see it all play out. And, and that I think. Uh, hopefully we'll have something to say about modern society and how we handle, you know, for instance, the, the murder of, uh, of indigenous women, you know, mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. And so uh, we'll see. I don't know. We, we haven't seen any more episodes, but uh, I'm curious. I'm really excited. I think episode one was really solid. And uh, I am excited to see these two actors uh, go at it for the rest of the season. I, I think uh, they have a really interesting tense dynamic that I have a feeling they're going to develop a mutual appreciation of each other, Patrick. You know, I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. (laughs) Anyway, that's True Detective Night Country, episode one. And we will be discussing episode two next week. All right, Patrick Klepek, let's get to our final episode that we're going to cover today. Uh, That is the season finale of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Monarch was there in San Francisco. When the whole city was coming down, these guys were taking pictures like they'd been waiting for it. You think that your father was working for them? This stuff wasn't a safe. Who are they? What's Monarch? This is the world we live in. Monsters are an inescapable reality. Those files belong to us, and they are more important than you could possibly imagine. Patrick Klepek, let's talk about the season finale of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from the description of the episode. The team struggles to find a way out of Axis Mundi while Kentaro and Tim make an unexpected alliance. I want to confess, I have not seen the entire season of Monarch Legacy of Monsters, but I did watch this episode. So we would have some uh, mutual point of reference for talking about it. Uh, But Patrick Klepek, why don't you tell us what you thought about this season of television and and what you thought of this finale? Well, in, you know, the previous iteration of this podcast, you know, you and I sit and talk about... You know, different shows we're like mutually interested in or one we want to pitch I, I the other it to you i i had said to you maybe mm-hmm. we should cover monarch legacy of monsters week by week i had said and that they, as an option the, re- the reviews of the season were like i think both kind of took us by surprise were like generally positive and like hey this is a surprisingly good season of television and so you pitched me on it i was like how many episodes is it it's like <laughs> 10 i was like yeah there's Okay, I know these reviews are good. And look, I'm a mark for a show like this. Like, Godzilla is one of my favorite characters. But, and I even like all the stuff that Legendary has been doing over the series of their films. But, like, 10 episodes? Like, David, I am not going to do this to you. There is, no, like, there is not a chance I'm going to take you through 10 episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. And I was very skeptical that the show could really justify, like, 10, 10 hours. Each, you know, most episodes are, are roughly an hour long, a little less. Uh, and, 
What I'll say is it does not justify <laughs> to 10 hours. Really, it's, it's you know, our, our discussion about uh, 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 True Detective, that's six episodes. I really wish this had been five to six episodes mm-hmm. of television. I think this show has a lot of really cool ideas. It, it, it tries to swing past being more than just uh, a Dave Filoni, like filling in lore mm-hmm. holes from, from previous fills or retconning for the sake of setting up future, future storytelling. The core thesis of this, of this show, I think is uh, looking at the way a lot of like Western Godzilla films are made, which is to then just like set it in America, like forget the pat like the fact that like, the origins of like what mm-hmm. made Gojira like an interesting and compelling story about like post-war Japan, post-bomb Japan. And it just forgets all that stuff so it can get to the big green monster right, and it right. can stomp around. And that's true of even uh, Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film, which I consider to be one of my favorite blockbusters of the last 15 years. I fucking adore that movie. I think all the human stuff is very flimsy, but the filmmaking around Godzilla itself is like some of the most terrifying imagery I, I've seen. I should put out. I should point out. I still have not seen Godzilla minus one. I'm supposed to see that this weekend. Amazing, uh, movie. and I know Incredible that movie. that movie has a really good sense of. It was um, my number conveying. three film of 2023. Yep. So, yeah, I'm looking. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my guess is it would land like that for me when I when I get around to seeing it this weekend. Uh, and the show, I think, looks at that legacy of how this character has been treated, even in these these legendary uh, produced movies, starting with Godzilla, and and the next one is supposed to be Kong X. Well, I forget I forget the actual titling of it, but it's the new Kong Godzilla film, uh, the new empire. Uh, that, Godzilla X Kong, the X-Kong, new empire, the new empire. Yes, um, uh, which terrible is title. like terrible title. it's a terrible title. Um, <laughs> the movie's probably gonna be a blast though. Uh, and <laughs> it's this movie really sits with uh, like a bunch of Japanese characters and like tries to like intertwine their histories for them in the storytelling and. It's just there's just not enough there. It's it's extraordinarily flimsy. There's not enough depth. Um, unfortunately, like some of those interesting, the the, the the structure of the season is split into. Um, there's stuff in the present, which is these characters dealing with what is called G Day in the in the history of this this version of Godzilla, which is when Godzilla appears in 2014 in San Francisco, as depicted in the Gareth Edwards film. Um, and this mysterious organization monarch that kind of like deals with tracking these events and what's happening. And then, so the show is, uh, is these characters dealing with the aftermath of that attack and uh, specifically their father, who is like mysteriously inter- intertwined with monarch and how that fits into their family's legacy. A word they say so many <laughs> times in this show, like this is your legacy. Just take a drink every time they say legacy in the show legacy. Uh, and then that is contrasted with uh, more of a period piece, which is the origins of Monarch and the origin of discovering what they call the Titans, which are Godzilla and Mothra, King Godira and, 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 and all of these uh, are kind of like, you know, classic uh, monsters that we know from, from Godzilla history. And that story is so much more interesting and everything happening in the modern day. Mm-hmm. And we spend so much time in the modern day. The only thing that works in modern day is uh, is is Shaw, where we have Kurt Russell just luxuriating in the fact that he's in like a Godzilla show, just yeah. hamming it up, 
having a good time. He's, he's tremendous. Probably, was paid many millions of dollars to appear in the show. Well, he's know? also in it. There's also a novelty factor that he is playing right. the older version of a character his son is playing. So, which is really cool. That's like really awesome. cool, and that because it's rare to see a show that does that where you can have a guy's son play the younger version of him. Honestly, the last time I can remember it happening was The Many Saints of Newark when James Gandolfini's son plays right. younger version of James Gandolfini, but obviously he has already passed on. So it was, it's cool that they're both in the same show at the same time, you know? Yeah, and Wyatt Russell is, you know, an actor I quite like, and I think he's, I think he's, I think he's pretty good here. I think this, this show just buckles under a core premise that doesn't have enough to it and yeah. is, is betrayed by a 10-episode one hour running time. Right. Um, it yeah. re- it just it has a bunch of cool ideas, and there is just not enough runway. And there aren't you don't see the Titans all that often. You know, big shock like like Godzilla is very expensive to produce. So then the show ha- that's that's then the show has to rely increasingly on these characters and their journey making sense. And I just much rather would have preferred a five to six episode show that was completely set in the past that was completely disconnected from any of the modern day storytelling and was just, what is it like to discover these creatures and the methods they use? All that stuff is really interesting and fun and the character dynamics are good and the characters they haven't set in modern day just, I had trouble connecting with. Um, And so uh, all that said, I did quite like the finale. Um, It actually like decently, it pays off your investment it just took a long time to get to that moment. And it's a little frustrating along the way to get to these emotional beats and these emotional payoffs. I think those payoffs do pay off. I was like, turned to my wife. I was like, she's like, are you, are you, are you crying? I was like, yeah, I'm crying at a Godzilla show. Shut up. <laughs> like, I realized how absurd that sounds, but, um, get ready to cry during the Godzilla movie as well. I know. I know. Perfect. That's yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Well, it doesn't look, it's, doesn't take that much for Patrick to cry. So let's mm. not pretend it's mm. a, it's a high bar to, to, to get me over the edge, but I think the emotional payoffs are are good. I like, uh, I think it's interesting where the characters end. I'm, I am hopeful there is a season two, but I'd, I'd love if that season two was more constrained, more focused. And so, you know, understanding what the show can do and can't do, which is it can't have giant fights all the time. And so you have to have storytelling that means something right. with these characters. And I really do think they tried. I just do not think there was enough meat on those bones to survive the running time. But uh, for someone that was wildly out of context, I am fascinated to learn if you, t- if you took anything out of, out of this hour of television. Well, I watched the first couple episodes of the show months ago, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is not really for me. I'd heard all these great reviews, and I was thinking to myself – I'm already kind of seeing the cracks in this thing, <laughs> and yeah. what I mean, which are basically what you just described, that it feels like there is a lot of plot or, or not very much plot that they're trying to stretch out. And that is also evident in this episode when I feel like I had the same plot point explained to me, I think, three separate times in three separate scenarios um, where it just feels like it's characters repeating exposition a lot and saying, yeah. like, we got to go do this thing. And and it's actually almost comical because. Uh, oftentimes the dialogue is very uninteresting and expository and just they blast this very creepy atmospheric music in the background and I was thinking to myself, if they just took away this music it would look and sound kind of ridiculous what these characters are saying <laughs> um, and so I think my decision to not like watch the entire show was justified uh, having said that 
it's always a delight to see Kurt Russell in anything. And so it was, he, he was wonderful in this show, uh, explaining, you know, and, and the, of course the big moment. So we're going to spoil the episode, right. Is when he meets Keiko, uh, for the first time after he has aged oh, decades, so good, but she has only aged like two months. And that is an extremely powerful scene. Obviously the highlight of the episode. Um, and when, and all those beats pay off. Again, I think it's a, it's, it's a it's a show that is very long in the tooth, but the, the time spent with those characters mm-hmm. makes that moment pay. Like, I'm glad that you could at least get like right. just just the sheer acting. I, you can get probably a sense. I got like seventy to eighty percent of the goodness. Yeah, maybe, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. No, one, you, and, one and might I, say that very well might that very well might be true. Um, a, a, a little bit what you miss is like what happens with like the modern day characters and the reveal right. that like you're you're meeting your granddaughter who is like a, you know, of age, like 20 something. Uh, and I just like all that stuff landed really like in a completely over the top goofy world of like jumping into holes that transport you to a different dimension or a hollow earth. There's actually this, the legendary verse of the, like has different names for different parts of how all this <laughs> stuff works. They don't, I don't think they ever say hollow earth in this one, even though that's the conclusion they draw in the last uh, Godzilla vs Kong film, but uh, I wanted more of that. It's like once when they pu- the moments they pull off in yeah. the end there, it's like okay, you can do this. It is possible to do this kind of storytelling in this hyper exaggerated world uh, and and distanced away from these giant CG creatures, but it's that's difficult to do. Um, and they didn't get to those moments enough, and it, it felt like two shows. I felt, it really did feel like there were two shows in here, and that's the only way they could justify ten episodes at an hour each. And it would have been better if it was one of those shows set in the past and then like concluded with the like the the present day stuff to tie it all together into the modern modern films that they're they're making. But um, I think yeah, it's I, an, I, go ahead. The, the resolution of the episode where they finally go back and Kurt Russell. Uh, Let's go of the pod, and maybe he's dead, but you, you don't see him dying. So I think they could. Depends still bring on him back if Apple's going to write a check yeah, for season two. <laughs> exactly right. Um, I thought it was all fine. The thing that was confusing was at the very end they show up at the place, and uh, the, one of the characters says, "It's actually been two years," and all the characters are like, "What?" And my reaction was, "Why didn't you see that coming? Like you clearly were in a pl- you clearly were in a location." that slows down your experience of time. So why is it surprising to you that two years have passed? Like I literally just started <laughs> watching the show and I seem to have more of an understanding of how time works than you do. It, it's stuff like that, that I'm like, I, I think it was a good idea for me not to like invest in the show. Anyway, no, I, 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 David, I spared you. I did you a kindness <laughs> by saying, I have suspicions. This will not justify itself. And you would have been, no, look. If I wanted, if I wanted in, to hurt, insufferable. If I wanted to hurt you, like, in, and maybe I should go back into the hollow earth pipe, come out a different pipe, and go, David, you need to watch all ten episodes of this because it would have been entertaining in a morbid sort of way. But no, mm-hmm. you would not have had a good time. I, I had a really good, a good time. time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because uh, Apple has a series of mediocre extremely expensive sci-fi shows like that's kind of their mm-hmm. thing like i know for all mankind is uh generally regarded as actually good yep it's actually good you have foundation which is like supremely yeah. expensive and i don't think it's supposed to be very apparently good. apparently season two was good but 
most people didn't make it to season two is a fact you know you have invasion mm-hmm. uh like uh you know uh, 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 an alien invasion show that looks very expensive and i don't know anyone that's watching that i, I literally just have not I... spoken to a single person well, it just got that, renewed uh, for season three, so don't, yeah. don't worry about it. Whatever Apple exec is just taking all that iPhone money and going, I love <laughs> mediocre sci-fi, and I'm going to spend so much money making it. And and Monarch slots into that, in which I'd never recommend it to you, but I love Godzilla stories so much and cannot get enough of them and like enough of the world building in this little uh you know the legendary's take on this that started with godzilla and has gotten more absurdist over time um i was happy to spend like 10 mediocre hours in a beautifully realized version of that even if i ultimately wish the storytelling was better yeah indeed any other thoughts on the season finale of monarch legacy of monsters patrick lepic or shall we wrap it up there i look if invasions getting a season three you sons of bitches better give me a season two of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 I hope they do a season two. I think there is an interesting setup for the future. I love, you know, King Kong appears at the end. Um, this appears to be set uh, like after Godzilla, but pre King of the, I don't, that, again, now I'm getting into the lore of the, the legendary monster movies. So maybe I've, I'm going to completely lose David here, but um, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I would, I would watch a second season happily. Uh, I just hope that the storytelling would get a little more, focused um uh because i think that's where they kind of lost the plot was a literal lack of plot in in this season uh gotta give a shout out to mary yamamoto i believe who plays dr keiko Uh, you know her performance really she's good uh, yeah tied the whole episode together yeah Uh, and i realize i say that as someone who hasn't seen the whole show but you know it's the fact that i still felt something means that yeah the, the sheer acting talent was there um so yeah anyway That's Monarch Legacy of Monsters. All right, folks, we hope you have enjoyed this new format of Decoding TV. We'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Let us know at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com and find us across all platforms at Decoding TV. We got one last segment for you we're going to do. going to be pretty quick. Uh, It's going to be our reactions to your reactions to the curse, (laughs) curse season finale, series finale. Uh, so stay tuned for a couple minutes for that. But, uh, before we do that, Patrick Klepek, you want to let people know they, they can find more of your work on the internet this week. Yeah. You can find me talking about video games, sports, home repairs over at remapradio.com. Uh, and, uh, my newsletter crossplay, uh, about parenting and gaming is at crossplay.news. All right. So Patrick Klepek, we recorded last episode about the curse, uh, great conversation with Jesse Earl. Uh, we did that, like, it was released right after the episode came out. We have since had a week to process a lot of the reactions to the episode. Uh, and I guess I just wanted to see if there's anything you saw that changed your mind or, you know, uh, made you think differently about it. I will say I would characterize the reaction to the curse finale as very polarized. Um, there was a bunch of people that thought, this is awesome, this is great, and probably about half of the people... Uh, thought this is terrible i think it is actively bad and does not honor what the rest of the show set up um but i'm curious patrick any any reaction to kind of the reaction to the curse i think one of my favorite moments was talking to a buddy of mine who uh had asked like oh are you watching the show the curse and i was like oh yeah yeah you know it's it's pretty cringy and funny like you know i don't know he's like i'm gonna wait and see how it ends uh before i jump in and so then when it ended uh i asked 
you please try, please, des- I, I'm begging you, stay off the internet when like the finale hits. I don't think the discourse will last that long, but like you might get you might get astray, and you don't and you don't want to know yeah. anything about what happened. Absolutely, so you Absolutely. could go in fresh. And then my buddy's like, okay, okay, so he missed all that. And then o- over last weekend, he's like, I sat down to watch the show. I made it 10 minutes before I realized there's not a fucking chance I'm going to make it through the rest of the show. <laughs> the cringe was just too much. Yeah. I could not handle it. And I was like, well, it gets worse from there. So if you're going to bail, bail. I was like, but can I spoil the ending for you? He's like, absolutely. So I explained, I explained the end of and I was like, right. So then they have a baby at the end. And then halfway through, he wakes up on the ceiling because gravity has reversed. And then like while she's having the baby, like they try and cut him down from a tree, but he goes into space and dies. And there's just a long pause and it's just like blank is typing in discord. And the response was, well, I guess I'm missing some context. And I said, no, no, you're no, not. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to read a couple comments at decodingtv.com that I think are uh, pretty interesting. Shane left a comment at decodingtv.com that was just blew my mind. You know, um, Shane writes, quote, what struck me was how Asher's final moments mirror how his son must have felt as he was being born. Asher waking up to find he's upside down could be a reference to how his son was born breach. Asher's Mm. panicking and screaming while the firefighter saws into the tree branch. Then we quickly cut to the delivery room where his son, who is probably similarly panicked, is being cut out of Whitney's womb. After the C-section, we see the doctor holding up Asher's son so he's contrasted against the blue curtain, much like how Asher is contrasted against the blue sky as he hurdles upwards. The show ends with both of them being violently and traumatically lifted into a place that is infinitely colder and more vast than anything either of them are used to. Maybe this is the show's way of saying that we are all cursed by our parents to live through the horror of being born into this (laughs) effed up world, only to suffer briefly before we finally shake loose the mortal coil. Or maybe it's just a clunky metaphor for how guys like Asher tend to fail upwards. Who is to say? Uh, well, also someone pointed out, uh, maybe this is in the decoding TV comments or just something I saw on social media, but that you know Asher's comments in his speech to Whitney in the the, the penultimate episode of uh, like I'll know when you don't want to be with me anymore, and I'll I'll know it and I'll just disappear. And mm, yeah, 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 he sort of. That's sort of what you know, it's kind of, yeah, there, lot, there's definitely a reading about. of the episode that she decides she's done with him and like, oh, he felt it like literally his body felt it and said goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of there's a lot of speculation, including in that comment, I think, like or that the comment presupposes that like um, maybe Asher is being reincarnated as his son in some way or like mm. the son being born and him being into this like thrown into the sky is like some parallel process. Uh, and you know, er- earlier on in the episode, he's pointing at her belly and he says, there's a little me in there, you know, there's a little me in there. And she kind of has this look of horror on her face. Um, <laughs> I do want to say one thing that I wanted to kind of correct of myself, which is, you know, I was saying how we didn't really have much interiority in, in Whitney's character and Jesse kind of disagreed with me on the episode. And I think Jesse was right basically, because if you rewatch the finale and just study Whitney's face, it's clear that there is a deadness in her eyes that is meant to make you feel like she is not happy. I, I mm-hmm. think that's what is implied. And so, yeah. yes, she kind of agreed to Asher's play of like, yes, let's give this relationship a chance or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, she's still not happy and doesn't feel like she can be herself and reveal the truth to Asher. And maybe when she finally has the baby and Asher's no longer there, she finally feels like she can be herself, right? She finally feels like she can say, 
what she actually thinks, um, which is in some ways a horrible thing that she actually thinks, you know, um, which is that she kind of doesn't like her husband very much. Uh, there was a question from Banana Joe who wrote in, I don't get why it's a problem that they gift the house to Abshir. I'm not in a financially bad situation, but I would be forever th- thankful to anybody who gifts me a house. Um, and I wrote that there's nothing bad about that inherently. The question is, why give a gift at all? If it's truly something that comes from a spirit of generosity, the recipient's reaction would not be important. But for the main characters, Abshir's reaction is what's most important. Also, David, a uh, uh, separate David, commented at DecodingTV.com, Abshir is presumably in a much more fin- uh, precarious financial situation. Owning versus renting a home has significant advantages and disadvantages. There's a lot written on this topic. And for many, renting is actually more beneficial than owning. For example, Abshir's awareness is demonstrated by his questions about property taxes, which renters are not responsible for. Anyway, I thought that was a great, great point about how giving someone a house uh, might in some ways be more burdensome for some people than, than you would think. But the other point is just that, uh, in my opinion, you know, I think it was Maimonides who said, like, the only the only true gift is one that is anonymous, you know, and I really feel that way. Like if you really have a generous spirit of giving to someone, then it, it does not matter what their reaction is to it. But clearly Asher and Whitney were really focused on as with the entire series focused on what people's reaction is to their generosity. And that is the tell that they are not truly generous. They filmed it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they filmed it. Right. Secretly. Secretly. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, some, I'm trying to figure out anything else that brought up, you know, some people pointed out that the final shots of the show are the only shots that were not shot void, like documentary or voyeuristic mm. style, you know, the final shots, like moving through the city, moving into the house, um, were, uh, kind of like on steady cam or dolly. Basically it felt like they were, you know, and, and everything else was, you know, in a car or on a tripod or something like that. And maybe it's to indicate that, you know, those shots you were, you were looking at those from the perspective of the curse or so, you know, something like that. But I did think it was worth noting that those shots were different than all the other shots. Um, anything else come up, Patrick Klepek that you thought was an interesting reaction to the show? Um, no, it was it was just a delight to to watch it all happen. Um, like I was just so ex- like just excited for everybody, you know, in good ways and mm-hmm. bad ways. But it was like one of those rare instances where we'd see we'd seen it before you, and then you just get to watch the magic happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and then you know, reading a lot of the critical analysis that you know most of the ones that I ended up reading fell in line with I think where you and I were like, huh, an interesting piece of filmmaking, but a poor piece of storytelling to conclude this saga. Um, I found that to be cathartic to read that written by like multiple, extremely talented critics that could convey that much more elegantly than I can. It was like, ah, thank you for putting into words how I felt about this episode. But you know, I, I still feel same way that we talked about, like I'm glad they took a wild swing. Um, I, I actually think it's a show despite my disappointment uh, with how it wrapped up, I will probably appreciate more with time for just how yeah, you strange. Were, you were really negative on it. And I, I was thinking to myself, Hey, I think, yeah, time will vindicate this show. I think because it's such a big swing and it's just so rare to see anything like that on television, you know? And I think, uh, I think history will judge the show positively um, because of how big the swing was. Um, there, 
I, I think a lot of the negative reaction is a result of people's disappointment that stuff they thought was going somewhere didn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, Asher's penis and that whole situation, like, oh, was that ever going to add up to anything? No, not, not particularly, unless you think it ties in with you know what happens with him at the end. Uh, Fernando's <laughs> proclivity for open carry, <laughs> um, the guy, the Ripper character who was in the thing, you know, who was in the house. Like, I, I, I undersold how many plot lines didn't even get mentioned at the end. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people are expecting this to be like a standard decoding TV show that is covered which is oh it sets up a bunch of stuff and then it you know resolves most of it and um this show obviously wasn't interested in doing any of that so uh i think uh, you you know the the most convincing criticism i heard of the show actually patrick lepic is that because it doesn't resolve any of those plot lines those none of those characters or plot threads feel consequential in any way they are merely plot devices or things that motivate the main two characters and that feels a little bit cheap in a show that theoretically is about how oblivious white people are uh and so that that is a somewhat convincing cr- critique of, of like yeah what happened to Abshir? like and we we don't even get to say goodbye to his daughters at all on, on you know like there's no goodbye for those characters. They're just like, oh, they're not here, you know. So really, the whole show is just filtered through their perspective, mm-hmm. uh, through the p- perspective of Whitney and Asher, and uh, for good or ill, you know, for good or ill. And I think you can have a lot of positive and negative things to say about that. So anyway, I want to thank everyone for their reactions um, and writing into us at decodingtv at gmail.com, commenting at decodingtv.com, uh, hitting us up on social media. Uh, it was a memorable TV show, and we appreciate it talking about it here on Decoding TV with you all. Let us know what you think of the new weekly format. Until next week. Uh, oh, uh, usually we'll try to be out on Tuesdays. Next week we might be a little bit delayed um, by a day or so because I'm going to go to Sundance, and so that's going to mess with my schedule a little bit. But uh, yeah, hope to see you all next week for another episode of Decoding TV. He's Patrick Klepek. I'm David Chen. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 